Well, I hope you've been enjoying our summer sermon series titled Centered on the Psalms. We are endeavoring this summer to allow the book of Psalms, which is the hymn book of God's people, to conform our lives more and more to God's will for us. Today's sermon is on Psalm 103. It's on page 502 in your pew Bibles. Our sermon is titled, Bless the Lord Who Blesses. This psalm kind of begs a question. Have you forgotten all that God is for you? Or has God's blessings towards you caused you to live to bless Him? Psalm 103. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that's within me. Bless His holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all His benefits. Who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good, so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. For the wind passes over it and is gone. And his place knows it no more. But... The steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. Bless the Lord, O you, his angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. Bless the Lord, all his works in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. This is the word of God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. If you want to know God, if you want to know his will, if you want to know his way, we must know his word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this most excellent psalm before us this morning. May we be humbled in your presence. May we be encouraged to forget not all of your benefits, but may we clearly see them and press them into our lives. And may we respond by, by blessing you with all that we have, we pray. Amen. You know, I remember uh, when I was a boy, there were some times, okay, maybe lots of times, where my mother sent me to my bedroom to count my blessings. 
You know, I cannot remember any of the reasons why, but I'm sure it probably had something to do with me wanting a new skateboard or not wanting to have to cut the grass. I hated making those lists. So much so that I've yet to make my kids go through that same ordeal of going to the room to remember all of their blessings. Isn't it funny, parents, how our pendulum can swing from one end to the other? Perhaps there is a middle ground where remembering our blessings can be a healthy and welcomed exercise. Like in our psalm here this morning. Psalm 103 begins with remarkable words. David, check this out, begins this psalm trying to rouse his own soul in unadulterated worship of God. He says, Bless the Lord, all my soul, and all that is within me, bless His holy name. Bless the Lord, all my soul, and forget not all of His benefits. David's honesty is refreshing, isn't it? You know, many Christian leaders feel like they have to make it look like they have all of their stuff together. Not so David. Here David, the king of Israel, bears all. David is summoning up himself to shake off any spiritual apathy or gloom. Did you ever find yourself in need of doing just that? David prods himself, singing, Bless the Lord, O my soul. The word bless shows up seven times in Psalm 103. Some of our English translations translate it with the word praise instead of bless. This is okay, but it doesn't give the full picture of the Hebrew word, abarek. That word literally means to kneel down. Like a subject would kneel before his gracious king and display his commitment, saying, I am yours, beloved king. All that I am, all that I have is given over to you and your service. Did you notice how many times in this psalm the word all appears? You don't have to count it. Don't Trust me. It was nine times. Everyone's like looking down. I don't know. Let me count. All right. Uh, throughout the psalm, David highlights how the Lord, how Yahweh, remember L-O-R-D in all caps is God's name, Yahweh, has He's recounting how Yahweh has given his people his all. And therefore, the right and proper response of God's people is to bless the Lord with our all. See, true devotion to God is, it's not lip service, it's life service. Now, why is it that David must stir up himself intentionally to offer his all to God? In verse 2, he says, It's because he's prone to forget. Forget what? All of God's benefits. Christian, do you see this in your own life? One moment you're abounding, uh, marveling at God's abundant blessing towards you. And then the next you're complaining as if God doesn't exist or, or as if God doesn't love you. But the problem here is more pronounced than just mere forgetfulness. The great commentator Derek Kidner points out the fact that you and I forget God and all his blessings may have a deeper, more subtler cause than absent-mindedness. 
The more likely root cause? Pridefulness. God rescues us. And in our pridefulness, we say, I've got it from here. In our arrogance, we, we go our own way. Psalm 103 helps us to recount all of God's blessings so that our prideful forgetfulness gets chiseled away. The heart of this message of the Psalms is this. Because God has blessed us with his all, we are to bless God ourselves with our all. We see this in five areas. We're going to run through them quickly this morning. We're we're to bless God because of his all-sufficiency, because of his unexpected commitment, because of his compassionate care, everlasting grace, and sovereign authority. First, we're to bless God because of his all-sufficiency. We see this in verses 3 to 5. In other words, here's what we see. For whatever need we could ever have, God is our source of blessing. David lists these benefits in verses 3 to 5. Five of them. First, the benefit of forgiveness of sin. We see it in verse 3a. Who forgives all your iniquity. David was not a self-righteous man. He didn't go through life like many do today, believing they do not offend God in any way. The mindset of our society as a whole is that there is no such thing as sin. I might make a few mistakes and I forgive myself for that. But David both loved God and he knew himself to be a sinner. David knew that God also quickly forgives those who live repentant lives before him. The second benefit is the healing of diseases. Verse 3b, who heals all your diseases. David knew that God brought healing, but the the difficult, challenging word here is all. (laughs) Yahweh heals all your diseases. On one hand, as we'll see later, David is referring to the nation of Israel as they were wandering in the wilderness. For those 40 years, um, they saw God repeatedly forgive their iniquities and heal them of all their diseases. But we must also acknowledge that this points to the age to come when God restores all of the the universe and, and heals us of everything in our lives. Our bodies will be free of disease on that day. The third benefit is that of eternal life. Who redeems your life from the pit, we see in verse 4. On the one hand, the pit refers to adversities that are common to every human being. And certainly every Christian could point to the pits in their lives where God has redeemed them from. But the pit can also mean the grave. And so being redeemed from the pit by God speaks of eternal life. David is rejoicing that God will redeem him in the present and for all eternity. The fourth benefit is that of covenantal love and mercy. Look at verse 4b. Amazing words. Who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. These are wonderful words to fill our minds with. Yahweh crowns you. David is saying that God makes you to feel like a king on the day of his enthronement. And what is it with which he crowns you? Steadfast love and mercy. 
Four times in this psalm, David sings of God's steadfast love for his people. The Hebrew word is one of my favorite. It's hesed. It's uh, H-E-S-E-D if you're taking notes. But it's kind of a, a hard H. It's hesed. Hesed is a tough word to define. King James translates it loving kindness. The New International Version simply just says the word love here. But, but the word hesed um, speaks of what we could perhaps describe as loyal love. It's a, it's a committed love. It's a covenantal love. Hesed is a till death do us part kind of love. God's love for his people is steadfast. It's loyal. It's committed. Regardless of how our love rises or falls, God's love for us is steadfast. He is committed in love towards us. We see we're also crowned with mercy. This is God's loving mercy, his tender mercies from heaven that he crowns his people with. May we never forget that God crowns us with a royal crown of steadfast love and mercy. The fifth benefit we see here is the benefit of satisfying us. Verse 5, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagle's. The, the word translated satisfies here is a, is a word that, that um, conveys this image of drinking until you're completely full. Remember last week in Psalm 16, David declared what? That he had no good whatsoever apart from God. That God is his only source of good in this life and the next. And it's true, isn't it? Every good that you could ever experience here on earth flows from God, whether you believe in him or not. God is the source or fountainhead of all that is good. And those who belong to him know this firsthand. God satisfies us in such a good way that it has a renewing effect. David likens it to the effect of the, to the power of the eagle. You know, as eagles soar high in the sky, they are a picture of what? Tireless energy and strength. These five benefits point us to God's all-sufficiency. Now, do you notice David, David isn't offering us some, some, some vague generalizations. He lists all of these benefits out in great detail. And it's true. Generalities about God, they don't do very much to rouse our souls to, to bless him. We need to remember his particular benefits Particularly, this means that when we pray, we're to give thanks for the details. Don't just thank God for this day. Thank him for the details of the day. And when we recount all of God's benefits, we will remember that God alone is sufficient to meet every need that we could ever have. That's God's all-sufficiency. Now let's look at his unconventional commitment. If you were to go to the local jail, it's in Riverhead, uh, and you were to, not that I've, like, had to go in there. Seriously. Dang. If you were to go there, and you were to bail out a felon, you'd expect some gratitude, right? A little something for the effort, right? Especially if you brought him home to your house, fed him, clothed him, Promise to help him out, right? 
Now, if the felon walked over to your neighbor's home and started saying slanderous, evil things about you, would you not want to take back everything good that you'd given them and then call up the police and say, you can take them right back to jail? Wouldn't that be how you would want to, to respond? That's the conventional response of human beings, right? But that is not how God deals with us. God has blessed his people with an unconventional commitment. You see it in verses 6 through 10. God does not treat us how we would treat each other. See, isn't it true? We hold on to that anger. And we notice that every time we see that person and we boil with anger, we're reminded of how we tend to hold on to our anger. And we chide and we chide. That is, we blame and we scold others so easily. But not so God. He treats his people differently. In verses 6 through 10, David is most definitely referring to Moses and the Exodus. In verse 6, he states, The Lord worked righteousness and justice for his people, the ones who were oppressed in the land. He brought them out, uh, and he was on his way to take him into the promised land. Verse 7 recalls how Yahweh made known his ways to Moses and all the people of Israel. And yet, how did they respond to this great redemption? this deliverance from slavery in Egypt. They chided God. They they said, we don't like this manna. We're getting tired of it. This water tastes awful. We want a Brita filter. We want a Brita filter, right? And while Moses was up on the mountain receiving the Ten Commandments, the people were down below, what? Melting all of their gold jewelry. Jewelry, if you remember the story, jewelry in which God had caused the Egyptians to bless his people by giving it all to them in the first place. They melted down all of that to make a golden calf to worship instead of God himself. God gave his all to rescue these people and they melted all their gold to make an idol to which they gave their all. Now, why would David recall this story? Because as David Kidner points out, no story surpasses the exodus for a record of human unworthiness, of grace abounding and benefits forgot. David's mention of it here reminds us of the sullen ingratitude which God encounters in reply to the forgiving healing and redeeming of which the opening verses sang. In other words, there is no greater account of of people forgetting all of God's benefits than the story of the Exodus. Then again, I think as I look at my own life, I probably come in a close second. (laughs) How about you? Thankfully, though, David did not recount this story only for the purpose of exposing our similar sinfulness. For just as the Exodus story displays Israel's forgetfulness of God, it also displays the unconventional commitment of God towards his people. Look at verse 9 and 10. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins 
or repay us according to our iniquities. See, while you and I blame and chide others, and while we prefer to hold on to our anger for as long as it takes, not so God. God gladly stills his anger. He does not repay us as our sins deserve. Why is this? Because of verse 8. Verse 8 is virtually a direct quote of Exodus chapter 34, verse 6, of which Danny Gomez read from earlier in our service. The context is this. Moses goes up to meet with God on the mountaintop. God gives the two tablets, uh, Ten Commandments. Moses returns and he catches his people, the people of God, red-handed, worshiping a metal mammal. Moses smashes the Ten Commandments. Moses prays to God to not depart his presence from his stiff-necked people. God assures him that he won't. Then Moses asks for something incredible. He says, God, just show me your glory. God says, okay, but you can't see my face. I'll come by you. You'll have to kind of hide over there. But first, what does God do? He calls him back up to the mountain. Moses brings up two more tablets so that God can re-give the people his Ten Commandments on these tablets. If you were to give someone a beautiful crystal vase and they just turned and gave you the finger and smashed it on the ground, would you be quick to forgive them and then give them another crystal vase? That is what God does. It is only after pledging to recraft the Ten Commandments that he allows Moses to see part of his glory. Then God says the words of Exodus as he he passes by. um, God says the words of Exodus 34, 6. And they're in verse 8. Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. I cannot begin to tell you how many people have told me over the years, and I used to believe this myself, that the God of the Old Testament is this angry, bitter, irrational God. Maybe you feel this way too. Know this. God is ever so patient. He is merciful and slow to anger. He abounds in steadfast love. That is how we must define him and see him. And we must know this, God has every right to be angered at humanity. Every right. We forget God. We we live as if he doesn't exist. And guess what? That's what sin is. Sin is living in the creator's world as if he doesn't exist. We live in his world. We take his good gifts and we smash them to pieces. Even Christians those who have purposely bowed a knee to God in repentance, even Christians, take the blessings of God for granted. And so God has every right to be angered at humanity. But thankfully for us, his anger does not win out. Why? Because the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. God has an unconventional commitment to his people. He does not respond how you and I naturally respond. 
I hope you see that. His commitment to not repay us according to our iniquities, it points us to the cross, right? I mean, all sin must be paid for. Now, David, in his day, would go to the tabernacle and he would sacrifice an animal. And God has given the blood of the animal for the forgiveness of sins. But it, that tabernacle and those animals point to the, to the greater sacrifice that has yet to come and has come to us in Christ Jesus, which is the Son of God on the cross, bearing all of our iniquities for us. The cross tells us what? That God does not repay our iniquities as we deserve. God is merciful. So we're to bless God because of his all-sufficiency and his unconventional commitment. Now let's look at his compassion and care. Sometimes parents play the game with their children. How much do you love me, they ask. And of course, the little girl's first, and she says, I love you this much. you know. And then the older brother, not to be outdone, says, well, I love you this much. And then mom comes and she says, well, I've got you all beat. I love you this much. And then daddy long arms gets out and he goes, well, uh, guess what? I love you this much, right? Maybe you've played that game. We'll play it later. All right. Um, <laughs> David helps us to see that God has us all beat. First in verse 11, David, he looks to the highest recesses of the sky and he says, as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love to those who fear him. Wait a minute, did he just say fear him? See, that's what bothers me about the Bible. We're called to fear God, but my God is not fearful. Maybe you think this way. I used to think that way. Why would, why would a God be a God that he would fear? If you view God this way, it's probably because in some way you've made God out in your image, right? And so, of course, he's soft and cuddly. But God is not a fidgety spinner at your disposal. I'm culturally relevant there. You like that? All right. <clears throat> If you don't know what that is, just see a young kid later. All right. God is not a fidgety spinner at your own disposal. He's the almighty, majestic, holy creator of all things. And you are not. And also, cannot fear be a good thing, a healthy thing? You know, sometimes when I'm just thinking about walking to the edge of a cliff... My knees get shaky. How about you? You ever do that? Just thinking about it. Or you watch some video on YouTube, and you're like, oh my gosh. You know, it's on YouTube, and yet you're like backing away from your monitor. Fear can be a good thing, right? If you've never experienced a healthy fear of God, then I'm afraid you have not rightly comprehended God, nor your own sinfulness. See, the fear of God leads you to your Savior. And so David rightly says that, that God's steadfast love is for those who fear him, who, who have this sense of reverence and awe when they think of God and, come, and desire to come into his presence. 
From here, David, though, lowers his eyes to the horizons. Verse 12, as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Let me ask you, how far is the east from the west? How far is that? Have you ever tried to figure that out? I mean, north and south, I mean, you got the two poles. When you get to the north pole, I guess you know you're there. It's pretty cold, right? Um, But east and west are limitless, right? So to the love of God. But it's not the love of God that is described as, as far as east is from the west. What is it? Your transgressions are removed as far as the east is from the west. God, through Christ, removes our sin and places it as infinitely far away as you could ever imagine. Think this through. I know, I know many Christians, including myself, we can dwell on past failures, right? Or, or have these sin patterns in our lives that, that seem to take forever to put to death. And so our relationship with God can endure protracted periods of gloom. We feel that our persistent sin negates God's favor. Now, I'm not saying that, that our sins don't have consequences. But God wants us to know what he has done for us. He has taken all of your sin and placed it on his son if you trust in Christ. And that horrible thing in the past or that sin pattern in the present, Christ has taken that infinitely far away from you. Now, knowing this changes everything. (laughs) It changes our willingness to even return to sin, does it not? Now, why would God do this? Because of his steadfast love. And well, as verse 13 says, he loves you like a father loves his children. Maybe I should save this sermon for next week. Uh, Father's Day. There we go. We get a little taste ahead of time. Verse 13, as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. There that is again. God has a fatherly compassion for his people. I know some of us maybe grew up in broken homes or maybe didn't even really know our fathers very well. They were distant, whether they were physically distant or emotionally distant. But can we not all at least we have some ideal father in our heads? We'll multiply that by a million and that's who God is. He's a perfectly compassionate father for his people. Now, I guess the big question is, how can God continue to show compassion after we fail him time and time again. Look at verse 14. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. God knows how we are made. He knows we're weak and frail. Stop trying to fool him with your devotions that are weak and fail. Frail, rather. He knows our tendencies. He knows that we mean well and fall flat on our faces. He knows that we pledge our all to Him and then give Him far less. He knows all this. And yet His compassionate care keeps coming and coming towards us. May we not forget God's compassionate care for us. 
May we remember it and bless him for it. Now let's look at God's everlasting grace. We see this in, in verses 15 through 18. Do you see what's contrasted here in verses 15 through 18? We have the ephemeral nature of man on the one hand and the permanent nature of God's love on the other. Derek Kidner has a way with words. He calls this section fading life, eternal love. David sees how fading our life is. The day you were born, you began to die like grass or flowers of the field. We got pretty good grass on the eastern end of Long Island. Lots of fertilizer and irrigation systems. But in the Middle East, grass was green for only a few weeks or a month. It turns brown and the wind just blows it away. It is no more. Some of us here with gray hairs, yes, they're in there. Uh, some of us with gray hairs feel this a little bit more than you younger people. They say youth is wasted on the young. <laughs> when you're young, you feel like you're going to live forever. And so you can take for granted the blessings that you have. You can underutilize the gifts that God has given you. But then later in life, you can wish that you could do it all over again. But the reality is, there are no do-overs. That is how our fading life is described in verses 15 through 16. And yet, there is a but in verse 17. But... The steadfast love of Yahweh is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. The steadfast love of Yahweh is from everlasting to everlasting. This tells us, it reminds us that that God's grace is eternal and everlasting. It has no end for his children. Like a child willingly obeys their compassionate father who loves them, so too the child of God pledges his all to God. Not merely out of duty, but out of love. And so what we see here is David is contrasting this fading life with God's eternal grace. And so I think we can find something that can encourage us here this morning. Our days of forgetting God's benefits, of living this up and down life, of pledging to, to succeed on your behalf, God, and then falling flat on our faces, our days of forgetting God's benefits will one day come to an end. Our prideful forgetfulness will cease. But what will be left to outlast it all? God's eternal grace towards you. What a comfort that is for our souls in the present. God's steadfast love is everlasting to everlasting. So we've seen the all-sufficiency of God, his unexpected commitment, his compassionate care, his everlasting grace. Now, one last thing. Let's look at his sovereign authority. Remember, God is a king. He's the greatest of all kings. He's the ultimate sovereign who rules over all. And so David ends this psalm of praise 
with people or beings, angels and hosts and all of creation, um, blessing God who rules over all. And because God is sovereign over all, he's worthy of our all. Verse 19, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. You know, when you look at the world as it is today, things look out of control, do they not? There's enough chaos and strife in every second of every day, enough that one could rightly question, where are you, God? Why don't you come down and fix this? In Christ he has. The Son of God came to establish God's kingdom on earth, a kingdom to which we pray as his children, that it would come in its fullness. On the cross, Jesus dealt a death blow to God's adversary. And to our eyes, the earth and things going on in it look just as chaotic as before Jesus' day. But in the spiritual realm, where you and I don't have eyes to see just yet, the war's been won. The enemy wages on a guerrilla warfare, but the battle, the, the, the enemy has been defeated. Christ and his kingdom are here on earth. And yet we await that final culmination, the day when all that opposes God will surely and eternally be forever dealt with. And heaven comes to earth. God blesses his people with his presence. He will wipe away every tear. And on that day when you say, I am all for you, God, there will never be any more backpedaling or forgetting or anything. That day is coming. He will wipe away every tear. Why is that? Because he knows our frame. He knows that we are dust. He knows our sorrows. And he has steadfast love and compassion for his redeemed. You know, in the midst of our, the chaos of our fading lives, we can forget that God is on his throne. We can not bless him as he is rightly deserves. But know this, angels in heaven, the heavenly hosts, and all of the works of creation are currently blessing the Lord. David does this so what? So that we can gain perspective while we live here on earth. Though we cannot see him, God is on his heavenly throne. God is sovereign and he's exercising his authority in his perfect timing. And so by uniting our hearts with David's lyrics, we remember that the Lord remembers, though we forget. He forgets not. I hope this psalm has had its way with us this morning. Though we are, we are so prone to forget all of God's benefits, though we pridely say, thanks God, I've got it from here. God knows our frame. He has pledged to never forget all who look to him with eyes of faith. May Psalm 103 be one that you turn to regularly, bookmark it, or put a little uh, dog ear on your Bible for that psalm. May we see that God has given his all for us. Therefore, we are to delight in giving our all for him. That's what it means to bless God. Because God is all for us, we live all for him. And we sing together, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Let's pray. Father, we need the constant reminding uh, 
We're not really in our rooms uh, counting blessings in a disgruntled sort of way. Um, We're reminded of your grace, your mercy, your steadfast love. We delight in the fact that you know our frame, um, that you know that we pledge with our mouths to follow you, um, and then we fall on our faces. We're thankful that your love is from everlasting to everlasting. May this truth change us, if not for forever, at least for a week, (laughs) that we may walk as those who delight in our Lord. May we bless you with our lives, we pray. Amen.